UFO Radio. This is your host Alejandro Rojas, and I am here with my good buddy Jason McClellan. Jason, well, that's, that, that's a weird sounding name, there, friend. I tried to say it um, in kind of a cultural way. I appreciate culture. All of us appreciate culture. Is that your Nixon voice, or what's going on here? I don't know what it is. It's Monday. I'm feeling kind of crazy and wild. Yeah, so. me too. So that wasn't any particular voice. That was just uh, me enjoying some coffee. Yeah, I feel we got a case of the sillies or something, huh? Yes, always. McClellan and the Clan McClellan. Well, it's good to be talking to you again, my friend. I hope you had a wonderful weekend. Absolutely. Always do. And I want to mention our guest. I'm very excited about our guest, who is Philip Mantle, who's a UFO researcher from the UK. Uh, We had him on before. I think we talked about why the alien autopsy was fake, which pretty much most people know, but he's done a lot of research to detail the background to demonstrate all of this. Uh, So he's, in fact, I think he's one of the the most learned on that subject of anybody I know of. However, that is not what we spoke about or are speaking about today. We are speaking abduction. So he's written a fiction book on alien abductions, and um, it's a very clever title, Once Upon a Missing Time. I love the title. But it is a compilation of, you know, the research he's done. And what's great is we get to talk to him about a lot of U.K. abduction cases, which people in the United States are not so familiar of with because we know, you know, Betty Hill and Travis Walton and some of the uh, American uh, cases so it's going to be great to talk to him about that. He's a really great researcher and cool guy. So very, very excited about it. Plus, I love the UK. I love the English. They rock. I was watching a good UK show last night, Gavin and Stacy. by the way, Jason, just in case you were curious. I assume that's what you were watching. Yeah, I watch a lot of UK stuff. But anyhow... Let's get into the news. Of course, Jason and I like to review some of the top news uh, of the week. And Jason, what story has particularly piqued your interest? Well, Alejandro, last week was a doozy for news. Pretty exciting week in news. But uh, I'd like to talk about a story here. And, And many of you probably remember there was a pretty incredible sighting last year. In Kentucky, October of last year, by amateur astronomer Alan Epling. He saw this cigar-shaped UFO overhead in the sky, and he took pictures of it, and it made huge headlines. Um, Then it was kind of dismissed quickly, people claiming that it was a a solar balloon or something. Um, Not everybody bought that, but it kind of went away 
Now it's back in the news again because Google, of all people, is claiming responsibility for that particular UFO, and here's why. So Google unveiled uh, a project they've been working on that uh, is trying to bring Internet connectivity to remote locations. So they've got these balloons they launch up that create this network that allows um, Internet transmission in these rural areas. So this this project they just announced, it's called Project Loon, and they show some videos on Project Loon's website. It shows these long balloons that look like you know, kind of normal weather balloons that have a package on the bottom, these big long balloons don't really look like the same object that Alan Epling photographed. And the other interesting thing about Alan Epling's sighting, based on his testimony, the object he observed was motionless in the sky for two hours, uh, which doesn't really fit the behavior of a a balloon. Now, we don't know exactly what he saw. We don't know exactly what Alan meant by motionless. You know, there could have been some bobbing and difficulty determining actual motion of things. This this object he saw was extremely high in the sky, and these Project Loon balloons fly extremely high in the sky, higher than airplanes, about 60,000 feet above Earth. So uh, it's certainly possible that uh, he was watching a balloon and it wasn't moving left or right. It was going up and down, catching different uh, air currents to remain sort of in the same place. And Google claims that these Project Loon balloons, they have the ability to somewhat control them and the direction they take. Um, They're able to vent the air in the balloons to prevent them from popping if the pressure gets too intense. So who knows? I mean, Google, the people involved in Project Loon are quite convinced that that was their one of their balloons they were testing out before this project was announced. But many are still doubtful. Right. I mean, you've got a couple of good points in that it stayed still for a long period of time. And I mean, I think the video does show what looks like a clear balloon, but it's elongated, cylindrical Whereas these Google ones look tip, more like a typical, you know, teardrop kind of balloon shape. Right. Um, so possibly from – so that that kind of doesn't fit. And then the two hours. But at the same time, it's a big piece of clear plastic up in the sky, which is what the video appears to be. So that's yeah, kind of a tough call on this one. Um, I really think that even if it isn't this balloon, it is like kind of a clear um, – piece of plastic and we were talking with uh, a buddy of ours uh Mark D'Antonio who who actually made some of those solar balloons that you see of and I you know I know we've gone to websites to look at how people make these solar balloons at their houses and usually they use trash bags so um you could just use clear trash bags instead of black ones like most people do and, and uh I guess it doesn't work as good as a black but uh so, yeah, kind of interesting, though. It's always interesting when these guys come out and just their, their attitude is so, this is definitely it. It was me, and it's kind of like with not a whole lot of info. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there, there's a lot of interesting backstory or, or additional information with this, this whole Alan Upling sighting because, you know, the object was seen in, in multiple states, and uh, now I, I can't confirm this. I'm just saying what I've read, but 
people who charted the the path of of where this object or a similar object could have been a different object um was seen during that time back in october um it was going uh, or, or flying in a, a direction that isn't typical of air currents but air currents my understanding fly in different directions at different altitudes so who knows but uh and this Google says their balloon eventually wound up in Canada. Um, and I'm not entirely sure where in Canada, so that'd be interesting to look into as well, because I know this particular UFO that Alan Epling saw in Kentucky um, sort of moved east, and people even saw it over in uh, in New York. So, mm-hmm. but you're yep. right; it's interesting how they can just 100% claim with certainty that it was absolutely their object. Right. Yeah, so we posted um, beyond that, you know, a lot of videos um, last week, too, so people have to check those out. Although most of them, you know, were something mundane. A couple of them were pretty interesting, like Minneapolis, I I thought was interesting. And one in San Antonio, that was somewhat interesting. So, um, yeah, people have to check that out. But that's not what my story is about. I'm going to talk about the big story of the week, which was Area 51. Um, which is kind of funny because it's just a little bit of a non-story. It's just kind of interesting. The CIA, there's this document that actually has been released for something like 10 or 11 years ago on the history of the U-2 and Oxcart, which is a program to develop the SR-71, essentially. And they talk about the histories of these programs, but they don't talk about where it was built. And in this document, when they released it in the past, it's been severely uh, – had tons of redaction. In other words, a lot of stuff blacked out, um, including references to Area 51, although once in the past they actually forgot to take out one of the Area 51 references. Um, so finally what they did was last Thursday they, they re-released it. There was a group um, at George Washington University, the National Security Archives, they uh, – asked them to re-examine the the secret declassification, and so they did. And, uh, they sent this request, interestingly, in 2005. So it took like uh, eight years for them to finally decide to declassify the majority of it. So now most of it is not redacted, including references to Area 51. So since it was, it's a CIA document, it's essentially you can pretty much say, okay, the CIA is finally declassifying uh, Area 51 and the name Area 51. Um, although, you know, we I did an interview with uh, John Greenwald, and he has done these FOIA requests for, for a long time. And he actually had a couple other documents that uh, Area 51 was mentioned in. One was the Atomic Energy Commission, who used to own that land, Area 51, and they said they had – turned Area 51 over to the CIA for them to begin to build what we know as the current, you know, secret spy plane base. Um, The CIA eventually did turn that over to the Air Force. And another document, which was kind of cool, was a document um, from the National Reconnaissance um, Office, and they had said that we want to fly a U-2 over Area 51, and they mentioned the name Area 51, in order to see what the Soviets might see if they fly Sputnik over, and Sputnik has cameras because they didn't know if it did or anything. 
Um, this was in 1962, so they can get an idea of what the Russians would see. These documents were released in just the last few years. I think John said he got the first one released in 2001. So they have been in documents, but now it's really hitting the news because essentially, you know, it is kind of more of a, an official kind of declassification that has gone on, and it's always been a mystery. And I make the argument that, you know, um, if Area 51 hadn't been attached to aliens and UFOs, which didn't start to happen until the late 80s, it, people probably would have not made a big deal about it existing. But um, a lot of people, I think, just because it was attached to UFOs and aliens, didn't believe it existed. I get people even now saying, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it's real. And it's like, yeah, I, you know, of course, I've been telling you this for years. Why, were you, why would you doubt it? And I think just because of the alien UFO type of thing. So... And that's made a big, big news, which is kind of cool. Yeah, huge news. And you're right, it is funny, people's reaction, you know, despite everything over so many years, people doubting that there's even a base there. And, you know, if you've paid attention to researchers or anything at all, it's kind of obvious. But the other funny thing uh, that you and I have talked about with all the headlines, and headlines are still being made today and they'll continue being made because every media outlet around the world has been talking about this story. The big mention in all these headlines are about UFOs or, or lack of UFOs in this CIA right. information. And UFOs are specifically mentioned in this <laughs> release, which is funny because people aren't mentioning that. They're saying no mention of UFOs, and there is specifically a mention about UFOs. It's a funny mention, but uh, saying that the U-2 is what caused a lot of UFO sightings and what spawned Project Blue Book, which is inaccurate, as you pointed out in a story on our website. Right, yeah, that's the angle I took. CIA gets UFOs wrong. Right. Because, yeah, Blue Book started in, in 51, and uh, this article says... Area 51 didn't start in the U-2 development until 1955, so the flight started in the late 50s. And we do know that the U-2 caused a lot of UFO sightings, um, one of the reasons, because it flew higher than anything else. So if you're a commercial jet, let's say, flying at 40,000 feet, and uh, you see something flying uh, at 60,000 feet, you're like, what the hell is that? Nothing can fly that high. So it, it did create some UFO reports, but... Yeah, Blue Book is much older. That's a complete misstatement. Um, and, you know, we keep hearing this from engineers, too. I don't remember that Annie, what's Annie Jacobson? Was that her name? Yes. Her book. Mm -hmm. And the engineers were saying, oh, yeah, it's the, the Oxcart program. That's what people were seeing. There aren't really UFOs. No, UFOs are seen all around the world and all around the country, not just in the Area 51 area. Um and not just during that time. And not just during that time. So that may account for some, but certainly not all. Right. Nice Interesting try. story nonetheless. Yeah, definitely. So uh, it keeps things exciting, keeps things uh, looking at uh, this stuff. And I really appreciated. I got to talk to NBC, and I loved her angle, which was UFO researchers greet the Area 51 news with a resounding duh and her right. point was that, you know, UFO people have been talking about this all the time, and now it's finally acknowledged and people doubted it was real when they shouldn't have. And, you know, there's, a, of course, 
as we all know and as our listeners know, there's a lot of credible information in this field that just doesn't get looked at because of the giggle factor or people just uh, kind of rolling their eyes to the whole idea of UFOs. Right. Those lamos. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, Mr. Jason, for talking some news with me. You bet, buddy. We'll do it again soon. Let's just get into our interview with Mr. Philip Mantle. I am super excited to talk to a friend from across the pond, as they say. I've got uh, Philip Mantle on the phone. Hello. Hello, Alejandro. Nice to speak to you. Nice to speak to you, too, or actually using Skype. I mean, Skype is awesome. It makes the world much smaller, huh? It does indeed. The wonders of modern technology. Exactly. So you've got this exciting book that's come out about alien abductions, but I guess to start off with, uh, we'll talk a little bit about your background. So you've been researching um, this topic, uh, UFOs and abductions, for decades, right? That's right, Alejandro. Um, you know, it makes me sound really old, but I'm not honest. <laughs> <laughs> I, I started um, uh, way back in, in the, the late 1970s um, with a small organization here called the Yorkshire UFO Society. I, I live in the county of Yorkshire, hence the name. Uh, and that uh, was was started by uh, Graham and Mark Bertzel. Graham uh, went on later to edit um, UFO magazine. Mm -hmm. But if I'm honest, I'd always had a, a, an interest in all things paranormal. As, as far back as I can remember, even at school, uh, you know, I would I would uh, I'd be fascinated by you know ghosts and all kinds of things, uh, and, and I kind of fell into this subject uh, when I was around about uh, 20 years old, and um, you know it gripped me then and, and continues to do so to this very day. Right. Yeah. It's fascinating stuff. Um, when you first became with uh, associated then or interested in UFO research. Were you skeptical of the abduction phenomena, or were you open to it right from the start? Since it is kind of a bit harder to take than simply just seeing lights in the sky. It is. I mean, if you think back to when I started, late late 1970s, around that time, there wasn't that many uh, well-known abduction accounts that had gone on the record. Uh, we're familiar with the ones uh, like Betty and Barney Hill, for example. There was one really two maybe really well-known ones here in the UK, but there wasn't an awful lot of them. So it, it wasn't something that we really concentrated on, or even I concentrated on at, at that particular time. Um, we were fortunate that um, to the north of where I live, um, there is a, an area called the Yorkshire Dales. It's a national park, lots of hills, very beautiful. And for whatever reason, we had a lot of uh, UFO sightings coming around, in and around those areas, uh, especially around a, a town called Skipton in North Yorkshire. Uh, and that kept, kept us pretty much uh, occupied. Um, so there wasn't a lot of thought or even involvement in what has become, you know, to be known as the alien abduction phenomena. Uh, although, you know, we had come across it, it wasn't a, a big thing in those days. So uh, that tended to come a, a little bit later. So you kind of got to follow the phenomena as it came to fruition, I mean, as the cases began to pile up. That's right. I mean, a, a colleague of ours who, who, who's sadly no longer with us, uh, he was a, a police sergeant, 
um, called T Tony Dodd. And Tony had um, a close encounter case, again, from this particular area that I've, I've just mentioned in, in North Yorkshire. A, a, a very peculiar one, and, and, and regressive hypnosis was used. And that kind of sparked the interest that even today, uh, Alejandro, you know yourself that it's still a, a, a bit of a stigma attached to the subject. Mm -hmm. and certainly in those days, the stigma was far, far greater then than it, than, than, than it is today. Um, people were very reluctant to speak to you in the first instance, uh, and let alone go on the record or go public with, with their accounts in, in any way, shape or form. And... Um, it wasn't until much later that, that things kind of started to change. It's, it's difficult to say why it changed. My opinion is that we had people join the subject who gave it much more credibility. Mm -hmm. One of those was, was the late uh, Dr. John Mack, for example. And um, in the UK, we had um, the man from the Ministry of Defense, uh, Nick Pope. Nick now you know, lives in the United States. So they tended to give the subject an air of credibility, and rightfully so, in my opinion. You know, Harvard professor Dr. Mack, man from the ministry, uh, Nick Pope, and so it kind of almost legitimised this area of research. And slowly but surely, you know, more people came forward with their accounts. There were a small number that, for whatever reason, uh, were prepared to go on the record and, and risk the stigma that, that may come with it or, or whatever came with it. They felt it important enough to do that mm -hmm. and, and take on whatever came. And again, you know, I was just fortunate that, you know, my, uh, my name and my telephone number sort of became known. I joined the British UFO Research Association and became a director with them. And, um, you know, in those days there was no internet. It was the telephone or the old-fashioned way of a letter, and, 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 you know, things started to come my way. And it, I also got to know another gentleman, again, who's sadly no longer with us, um, Bud Hopkins, of course. And, and Bud and I met um, and on a number of occasions. He came and stayed with me. I hosted a number of conferences, and, and Bud was one of the keynote speakers. And we exchanged a lot of information, again, across the pond, as, as you mentioned, and just got fascinated with it, or more and more fascinated, I might say. And, uh, you know, once you got to interview some of these people and speak to them firsthand rather than just read about it, it really did leave me scratching my head. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's probably why I've got a bald patch. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it still does, you know, it still does today. And um, so kind of gradually got into this, this, this particular field, uh, Alejandro. So you were researching all of this uh, during the time of the Travis Walton event, and just to remind people, you know, this is when the loggers in 1975 saw the UFO, one of them approached it, and then uh, went missing for five days and uh, had this experience on board that he recalls. Um, what, how was that, you know, being a researcher uh, in the U.K., what was it like finding out about that case, and what were you guys thinking about that case? Well, I mean, in that case and others, you know, really hit the headlines. We had a, um, not the same type of incident, but just a few years after that, we had an incident here. Again, just happened in the county where I live. And although there wasn't a lot of people involved, it was one person. It was um, a police constable. His mm -hmm. name was Sir Alan Godfrey. 
Alan was on police patrol duty in his car at the time in a town called Todmorden. And uh, he'd been, believe it or not, he was, he'd been looking for some stray cows all night. I hadn't found them. And he thought, I'll take one last look before I finish my, my shift. He'd spoken to an officer on foot patrol in the town. It was, you know, almost deserted, early hours of the morning. He took one last drive up through the, the, the high street. And uh, there's a mill there. And he noticed these lights up ahead on the road. As he got closer, he realized it wasn't just lights. There was a big uh, diamond-shaped object blocking the road. Uh, it had a bank of panels across the middle, and the bottom half seemed to be spinning. So Alan stopped his police patrol car. He tried to radio to the base, couldn't get through, so he took out his, his notepad and drew it. The next thing Alan can remember is being several hundred yards further down the road, driving the patrol car, looked behind him, and this thing had gone. He turned the car around, went back, and uh, there was a dry patch on the road. It had been raining during the night. And when Alan got back to the police station, uh, he was late. He couldn't account for that. His police issue boots were also split, and he had a burn on one of his foots that wasn't there the night before. The reason I mention Alan Godfrey in connection with, with Travis Walton, it happened just a couple of years later. Um, for those that don't know, um, the Travis Walton case was made into the movie Fire in the Sky. Now, before that particular movie got the green light, the, the production company also spoke to Police Constable Alan Godfrey. And they came over to England to meet him. And it was a, a toss-up between him and Travis Walton on what the movie was made. Wow. But, yeah, I mean, Alan um, later went um, he, under hypnosis. An abduction scenario uh, emerged. I've seen the tape of, of, of the recording. And he eventually he went public, uh, you know, in, with permission of his, his police uh, bosses, if you like, the uh, chief constable. And um, yeah, I remember it, you know, when it happened, it, it was a huge story. And, you know, I've met Alan many times. He's what we call a down-to-earth policeman. I wouldn't have liked to have come across him in his official capacity. <laughs> uh, you know, he was no-nonsense. He had several commendations um, to his name, you know, that he'd received in the line of duty. Unfortunately, a few years later, he, he, was, he was injured in the line of duty and had to retire on, on medical grounds. But uh, it was just, Fascinating, you know, he was a gentleman highly regarded by his his his, uh, his his fellow officers, the local community. Had no interest in the subject, a bit like Travis, you know, they had no real interest in the subject. They were right. about their everyday work. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to have met Travis Travis a few times, uh, and Mike Rogers, one of his colleagues there, and, and Alan to this very day uh, has never changed his story never embellished it, elaborated on it. And he said, you know, if I had a stone in my hand, Philip, I could have thrown it at that thing and it would have gone clunk. Wow. You know? As you know, our police officers don't carry guns, so it's the, it's the, it's the British policeman's equivalent. Rather than shoot it, he could have oh, thrown right. a stone. <laughs> you know, he could have thrown a stone at it. But, um, and, you know, Alan, Alan himself just scratches his head. And, you know, I, I can only, he said, I can only tell you what, what I know and that, and that you make of it what you will. And that really did make the headlines and made people sit up and take note. Bearing in mind, of course, if uh, PC Godfrey had seen someone, you know, uh, breaking the law, stealing a car, for example, or whatever, his testimony was actually, you know, could stand up in court and he could put you in prison. Right. You know, so here's a man who said, well, I, I encountered this peculiar vehicle one morning blocking the road. 
and this happened to me, but yet people don't believe him. So that, that seems kind of strange to me. Right. And and I can see the similarities where a down-to-earth person not interested in the topic, uh, having these extraordinary events, and then the story being consistent the entire time. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the difference being with Travis, he had, uh, you know, other witnesses to the, the initial event, mm-hmm. uh, his, his, his colleagues working in the woods with him at the time. Uh, P.C. Godfrey was on his own, but he did have some physical evidence, the split boot and the burn on his foot and things like that. Uh, and also there was another similarity, not not totally, but unbeknown to, to Alan Godfrey, um, the hills around Todmorden are, are quite steep, and um, there was three other officers on the same night on the hills above the town looking for stolen uh, motorcycles. And there was three of them, two, two, two male and one female officer, and uh, they witnessed a, a UFO during the night heading towards the town. You know, Alan was, was totally unaware of this. And again, two, two out of the three have spoken up. I've met one of them, they've told their story, and they have no idea what they saw. You know, in their, in their official duty, they've seen just about everything, but they haven't seen anything like that on that particular evening. Are there other cases that, um, you know, aren't as popular over here in the United States that were some early uh, credible abduction cases out there? There is indeed. I mean, you know, again, similar time frame to to Travis Walton and and, uh, Alan Godfrey, different part of the country this time, down further down south of of England in a place called Avely in Essex. And uh, it was a gentleman called John Day with his wife Sue and their children, and um, they'd been out to visit family one evening, and again, this is, a, if you remember, a different time compared to today's modern technology, and, um, you know, Avely in Essex is only, I think, something like 30 or 40 miles from London, it's not the middle of nowhere, they were driving home, and they had uh, this, they had a close encounter, a sighting, and a strange thing happened, they went through a green mist, as they entered the, the village where they lived, and the car seemed to bounce or bump. And Sue Day, uh, John's wife, turned to him and said, is everyone here? Uh, the radio malfunctioned in the car. When they got in, uh, John had been looking forward to watching a particular uh, TV show, and it had finished. In those days, here in the UK, the TV finished at a particular time in the evening. That was it. If you missed it, it was finished, gone. And, you know, there was a a, a big period of missing time that they could not account for. Um, When they went to sleep, they had these nightmares, these visions of what happened, and it all spontaneously came back. Um, It's called the Avery case because of the the location it took. There's a lot more to it. I'm I'm, I'm trying to condense it here. Mm -hmm. But um, John and Sue remembered most of what happened. They had a, had some hypnosis later, but they'd already remembered most of the encounter. And uh, I met John. Um, he would not let anyone go near his children, and never has. They've never spoken up, which I, I think is to, to his credit. And um, one of the things that, that sometimes happens with a close encounter witness, not all the time, um, sometimes things, ch- things change. I mean, John and Sue both became interested in what we would term today green issues, environmental issues, which weren't a big thing here in those days. John was a a carpenter uh, by nature. That's what he did for a a profession. 
but he also became much more artistic. When I met him many years ago now, he, he was making the most beautiful ornamental dolls' houses. And, and he put it right down to this encounter, you know, the, his outlook mm. and his, his abilities, if you like, certainly his artistic abilities, changed as a result. And uh, wow. it's a well, you know, it was well investigated, not by me, by, by colleagues of mine. And I met John um, and, and interviewed him at length. And so it's a well-known case, but, you know, probably just well-known in the UK rather than overseas. Uh, and it's a fascinating event. And, um, you know, I had, some long, had a long conversation with John about it. And uh, it's, it's, you mentioned at the, at the beginning of the show I'd written a, a new book. That's called Once Upon a Missing Time. Mm-hmm. It's a work of fiction. And part of the, uh, the encounter in there, it's, it, you know, it is made up of real cases. Part of it is based on John and Sue Day's encounter uh, way back in the late 70s in, in Avery and Essex, especially the part with the green mist and, and that kind of thing. And, uh, it, you know, absolutely fascinating. It's interesting, too, that you mentioned the uh, change in the uh, the art that this gentleman did because uh, the Allagash abductions in 1976, uh, for people who uh, went through that, they said that after their experience, they uh, became – they were already somewhat artistic, but their art had changed also. Absolutely. I mean, again, there was a young man I interviewed – uh, at length, several occasions in in Wales, uh, at a place called Pafeli in 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 the northwest of the country, and uh, I called him Nigel Matthews. That's not his real name, but his real his first name is Nigel, and he was only a young man at the time. And, and and Nigel was walking home one night from a friend's house, quite a rural location, uh, and up ahead in in a field he saw a light, and part of him said I, I wanted to take a look. But there was another part of me said, don't go anywhere near it. Anyway, he went and had a look. There was a strange object in the field. He was approached from behind. Somebody, somebody grabbed him. He remembers coming around on this, this, this object. It was laid on a table of some description. And these particular looking, peculiar looking humanoids were there. And um, Nigel had a Walkman with him. You know, the old tape recorder. And they took that from him and placed it in this panel. And they said it was the most bizarre thing. that Here he was in this otherworldly environment with this rock music blaring out. Anyway, after the encounter, he, he, he managed to stagger home. And he lived with his mum at the time, his mother. And he, he, he had no hypnosis. He told her everything that happened. Cutting a long story short, um, when I interviewed him, I think it was on the second or third occasion, um, he, he admitted to me that... And he swore me to secrecy at the time, uh, Alejandro. I, I was not to tell anyone. Hmm. Um, he became, um, he would write spontaneous poetry. And he had no talent for it before, no interest in it. This is a gentleman, wow. who, a young man with long hair, denim jacket, pretty much like I used to be when I was the same age. Liked his rock music. And he, he, was, he was working in a local hotel. And he said, sometimes, Philip, I'll just have to pick up a napkin. Uh, and the poetry will be in my head, and I have to write it down. Uh, and, and again, he put it all down to, to the close encounter. He said, that, whatever that was, this spark, this, this spontaneous poetry, it was an artistic talent that he never had, not even the slightest inkling. Uh, and, and no interest in it, you know, I like rock music. And whatever you say about rock music, with the greatest respect, I don't think you'd ever call it poetry, you know? 
And um, and that was just one of, of several who had this. He also, you know, became aware and interested in environmental issues and things of that nature. Um, so whether, you know, whether there's something there, whether those things are telling us something, I don't know. But it, it is something I've come across from time to time. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, what I think is interesting, uh, along with this artistic stuff, is that uh, Dr. Leo Sprinkle had done um, some research and some psychological inventories uh, years ago, and he found that there was also a change in their spiritual perspectives. In fact, he found that, uh, which was surprising to him, many of them had uh, much more, they believed in reincarnation after their experiences where they really hadn't thought of it or had more traditional views um, beforehand. Have you noticed that also, maybe change in their spiritual outlooks? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there was one lady who lived in uh, near the town of Northampton. Uh, her name is Elsie Okinson. Sadly, Elsie's uh, no longer with us. But um, not only did she become uh, you know, interested in spiritual things, Elsie became a spiritual healer. Wow. And again, without any hesitation, she said, you know, it was a direct result of her encounter. And um, Elsie was an educated lady. She was married to a a very high-ranking police officer. She was no one's fool. She was a lovely, lovely lady. Um, I I tutored a college course on UFOs, believe it or not, for a short while. Uh, And uh, Elsie was gracious enough to to come and speak in, in front of the students to give them, you know, the opportunity to speak to someone who'd, uh, you know, uh, come face-to-face with the phenomenon. And um, she, 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 she said it was, a, to her, the, the whole event was a spiritual encounter. Um, she called it UFOs and, and, and what have you. But um, So what I did on the, on the back of that, I asked a small number of, of abductees. It's not a scientific test in any way. I picked them at random, and I said, um, I asked them that very question. Excuse me. What do you believe, what do you think is the nature and origin of your experience? You know, I'm I'm an outsider looking in. I've not had these experiences. You have. And there were a couple that said, definitely, definitely, this was beings from another world. However, uh, to my surprise, um, a number of them said, no, to, to me it was some kind of spiritual experience. Hmm. Um, the majority, of course, just said, I don't know. Um, there was even one lady um, from the Manchester area of, of northwest England, uh, Linda. Um, she was with her daughter at the time. They were in some fields behind where she lived, literally in a, a nice summer's day, picking wild flowers, when they saw this most bizarre object coming down towards them. And she described when she looked at this object, it was all, and she doesn't know really why she describes it this way, but it's the best way. And she said it was almost biblical, you know. And I, I'd never really come across that until, until I, I, until I spoke to Linda. And um, so, make of it what you will. And so that, you know, I've met Leo as well, Doctor Doctor Sprinkle, and um, I think it's an area of research, uh, Alejandro, that that has been neglected. Uh, and, and maybe, you know, that's something that others may concentrate on in the future. It's not, not just what has happened to them, but what happens to the people afterwards. Um, right. You know, we'll, we'll wait and see. I agree with you, and I want to talk more about that. But, but but first, I want to talk about, you know, kind of your book. You write, the book 
is everything that happened to the character in the book um, based off of real cases? Absolutely. I mean, I think mm-hmm. there's only some of the minor characters in the book that are not based on real people, and that includes the UFO researchers and so on. Um, the actual encounter is made up of three or four genuine real-life close encounters here in the UK. I mentioned John and Sue Day, mm-hmm. uh, Avery and Essex, partly based on, on what happened to them. And, um, you know, someone said, well, why, you know, why, why write a book of fiction about alien abductions? Well, a number of reasons, really, well, as we've just been discussing. When, when, we, when we talk about or write about abductions, we tend to focus on what happened to the individual at the time. You know, I was driving so-and-so, I saw this, you know, this happened, I remember this. Very little is known about what happened afterwards, how they cope. To whom did they turn? To whom did they tell? How did they deal with the the experience? Um, so, and also, if, if we're honest, the, the, there are a number of um, uh, sceptical people out there who would have us believe that the abductees are all crazy, or looking for attention, or trying to make money, or are liars, or deluded, or whatever. When in fact, quite the opposite is true. So one of the reasons for writing a book of fiction was, in my opinion, to put the abduction uh, experience in the correct light. These are normal people. They're not, you know, crazy. They're about their everyday task. Mine sentence around is a, a couple, uh, Alan and Pamela Morrison and their daughter. He's a teacher in a local school. She's a social worker. They have a teenage daughter. Her interests, you know, music, pop music and boys and, and, and her friends. Uh, uh, I set it in 1990 uh, because it's, an, it's a time when, when, again, we had a lot of uh, reports here in the UK. I set it in North Yorkshire, again, because we had a lot of things in that, in that particular area. And a lot of the, the book um, deals with how they cope. You know, they first turn to a family member. Uh, I mean, again, you know, this is born out of my experience in interviewing people. I, a, a lady who doesn't live too far from, from me, Jane, had a number of encounters down the years, and the first person she turned to was her, her family. And they just were bermused by it all. You know, they, no disrespect, they were just a normal, average family with a normal job. What can I do? So the next thing, Jane thought, well, I must be going off my head, you know. Mm-hmm. So she turned to her, her doctor. He prescribed uh, tranquilizers, which they did to all women of her age in, in that particular time period. She threw those in the bin because they didn't work. Um, and eventually, after a, a long um, period of frustration, she, she, she found me and turned to me. And uh, you know she was just grateful that I would sit there and actually listen and, and not pass comments, not smirk, not laugh. And... Um, you know, I'm still in, in, in contact with her now, and this is, you know, after many, many years. So, you know, my book, Once Upon a Missing Time, deal, tries to deal with all this and to show that whatever this phenomenon is, it can happen anywhere, anytime, to anyone. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult to deal with. Right. And you mentioned anywhere. I mean, uh, a lot of people feel, I guess, that there's a core kind of experience, that there are similarities in the abduction experience, for the most part, um, that people report. 
And those similarities are similar here in the United States and out there. Uh, would you agree with that? And how would you kind of describe what is the core experience? Absolutely. I mean, again, there was a, a, a gentleman from the United States, um, uh, Dr. Thomas Bullard, known as Eddie Bullard. He conducted a study of uh, hundreds of, of published uh, abduction accounts. And he, put, he broke the experience down into its various components. And they seem to form an order. You know, each case doesn't have all the components. It may have some, some may have so many, some may have less. But nonetheless, they seem to follow the same in inverted commas pattern. And that didn't matter where they were reported, which country, by what type of person, their age group, their, their ethnic background, their education, whatever didn't seem to make any difference whatsoever. One of them, of course, he, he termed doorway amnesia. Words to that effect. So they see the UFO, they may even see the beings outside of it, but they have no recollection of how they get on board this thing. And that crops up time and time and time again. So it's just what, and it always follows the pattern. One of the other things picked up by a, a colleague of mine um, called Ken Phillips was the emotional content. And it can be different types of emotions. Um, it also goes back to a study by, done by Alvin Lawson. And um, Alvin got some volunteers and put them under hypnosis and, and, and got them to invent a fictitious alien abduction scenario, which was you know, quite illuminating. But the one major thing that was missing from it was this emotional content. Mm. You know, it was just, I am a robot, I will tell you this day. It was, it, it was, you know, it was metronomic. There was no kind of emotion whatsoever. But I, I, I mentioned um, David Thomas uh, in, in Pafeli in northwest Wales. When I talked to David about his job or his rock music or his girlfriend, he was just like any, any normal young man. When I talked to him about his experience, his whole manner changed. Uh, the, the experience had terrified him. Uh, and, you know, you could see the emotional content there when he spoke about it. Uh, and, and the same with Alan Godfrey. See, you know, Alan wasn't frightened. I don't think Alan P.C. Godfrey would be frightened of anything or anybody. But he talked about things and he could see that, the, you know, he could hear the, the clogs in his head trying to figure it out. There was that emotional content there. And um, with, the, with the fictitious ones, it's not there. So it doesn't matter where you are in the world, who you are, what your background is, there is some kind of commonality there. And, and again, I think it's still an area of, of study that is, you know, need, need, needs more work on it. Mm -hmm. When you talk about the emotional content, I guess maybe we could talk about some of those emotions. So, like, I think the obvious one is probably fear and terror. Yeah, I mean, I've come across a wide range of, of different emotions. David, definitely, David Thomas, was quite literally terrified. I mean, David did not have any regressive hypnosis. We remembered every second of his encounter. Told his, his mum everything when he got there. Now, the following day, it's quite a rural place where they lived. His mum went to the local library, found one UFO book, and she found a mention of a UFO group in Oxford, which is a long way from northwest Wales. Probably not a long way by American standards, but in, in our little country it was. Anyway, she man managed to find a phone number for them and rang them up. And they said, right, we'll get back to you and we'll arrange to come and see you. So the following night after his encounter, David was so frightened, she literally put him in the back of the car, 
drove to Oxford. It now started to snow heavily, but she still carried on and arrived at this gentleman's house unannounced. And they come out and found David cowering in the back of the car. Now, eventually, David had to have hypnotherapy to relieve himself of the nightmares that these, this encounter had caused. And um, I wrote a, a, a non-fiction book. My first ever book was called Without Consent. And it dealt with missing time and abduction cases here in the UK only. David's in that book. And I sent him a copy. And, and he, you know, he, he wrote back and thanked me for it. It was five years before he plucked up the courage to read it. Wow. It scared, it scared him so much. I, I, you know, I apologized to him later because I asked him if we could visit the, the scene, the location of where this happened. And we did. And I have a photograph of David standing by these trees with a gap in it. And this gap in the trees is, looks into the field where, where the object was. And it's only when I had the, 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 the photographs developed, he's actually stood there rigid with fear. And I didn't realize that at the time. It was quickly pull the car over, take a couple of pictures, and, and you know, and we were gone. And, you know, and I apologize for putting him through that later. I, I, you know, I was, I was uh, oblivious to that fact. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, there, there is that. There's a, you know, there's, but there's a whole range of emotions. But uh, David was certainly terrified. Mm-hmm. What is maybe another common emotion that perhaps you uh, were not expecting? I think, I don't know if you call it an emotion, but I, I know um, a number of uh, abductees felt, I don't know if you call it a need, if you like, or a, a, a compassion to speak out. For, mm. You know, they, they didn't necessarily know what had happened to them or they weren't convinced that it was one theory or another. They just felt that for some reason they had to go public. They had to let other people know about this experience. It was important. And they also felt a need or a compassion to speak to others who'd had similar experiences. And and as a result of that, um, one of the first, if not the first, uh, UFO witness support group was founded here in the UK. I think it's still going. And so there was that 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 compassion uh, to do that, and 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 people like Elsie Oakinson, who I mentioned from Northampton, she certainly did that. Faced quite a bit of ridicule because it was only a tiny, tiny community where she lived. Everybody knew her, but she just felt that that you know she had to do it. There was a some kind of compulsion to make her do that. It wasn't for the money or the fame or anything like that, you know, because none of that comes. <laughs> right. And um, so you know and. Uh, that seems to be a, an underlying factor in some cases, not all of them, but something drives them on. They, they, they believe that it's important that people know about this, these experiences, uh, irrespective of, of, of the stigma that, that, that comes with it. Uh, and that happens time and time again. That is really interesting that you say that, because one of the things that I wanted to ask about when we were talking about the terror is uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome, um, which... Uh, a lot of people experience, of course, with, with major trauma, and I think I've seen that in some of these people, and I would I would guess that you might have also, but one of the best ways to treat that is talk therapy. It's people getting together in groups and talking, so it's interesting that they kind of automatically have this feeling to do that. Absolutely. I mean, again, another lady who was featured heavily in, in my book, Once, Once Upon a Missing Time, and she was also a, a kind of a, an unofficial consultant on it. I mean, a, when I was writing things, 
I, I, I would email and say, just make sure I've got this right. And her name is called Rosalind Reynolds. Rosalind's encounter happened in 1982. And um, many years back, I used to organize um, conferences. Uh, and one of the conferences I had, someone in the audience um, asked, you know, you know, we talked about abductions. I said, you know, I'd like to, to hear it from the horse's mouth. Now, just by chance, Rosalind was in the audience. She'd never spoken in public about this before. To the best of my knowledge, had never uh, spoken about it again. And I asked if she would take the stage. And she did. And she spoke only for about half an hour. And she told what had happened to her. She took a few questions. And then in the interval, a, a lady approached me and uh, she says, you know, Philippa, you know, I'm, a, I'm actually a trained psychiatric nurse. It's what I do for, for a living. And she says, looking at that lady, and, and, and I've spoken to her, she says, I think she's suffering from post-traumatic stress. She has all the symptoms for it. We're trained to recognize that. I think she said she'd worked with people who've been in conflict or, you know, or, or victims of crime or whatever, something along those lines. So, you know, she noticed it. She was a, you know, a trained professional. I just thought Rosalind was a little bit nervous. But, you know, she said, no, it's, it's not nerves. It, 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 it has all the hallmarks of post-traumatic stress. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, fair enough. And like I said, with, 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 with the, the girl I mentioned called Jane, she'd gone to her, her family first and then the doctor and with me. And when I met her, all she wanted to do was talk. You know, so I just sat there and, and, and left it to it. And she found that very therapeutic. So whether she you know, was also suffering from something along those lines, maybe. You know, I'm not, I'm not a trained professional in that area. But I think it's mm -hmm. certainly very, uh, it's very good for them to, to, to speak to others and, and, you know, people like myself as well. At least we'll listen. Right. And um, getting to the book, by the way, I want to mention that I love the title, Once Upon a Missing Time. It's very clever. And I love, I think it's really cool. But with the book, um, do you feel like you were able to, as a uh, novel or nonfiction, maybe even get into some areas or at least express some aspects of the abduction phenomena you wouldn't have been able to otherwise? I think so. I, I, you know, it, it, Again, you know, if, if if you go to any of the conferences or read the magazines, um, which I, you know I encourage people to do exactly that. When you read about a close encounter, you'll read that you know Mr. Smith was you know walking his dog and he saw this. This happened, and that's about you know and you you know you'll go through all the nitty gritty of what he encountered, what he remembered, maybe hypnosis or not, whatever. And you may even mention other cases that had similar descriptions and, and so forth. But we forget uh, when we do that that we're dealing with a, a you know a human being here, a person who has a life, has family, feelings, emotions, um, a job, maybe you know probably, the, you know. So what happens? You know what happens to them? And um, that's what I tried to highlight in the book. It's, you know, yes, they have this most bizarre encounter, but what happens to them afterwards? You know, who do they turn to? How do they as a couple, because in my book there's two of them, you know, it's stressful enough when you're, when you're married <laughs> at times, you know, and you've got right. a family, it can be very stressful, and you're working, and then something like this happens, how do you cope, what do you do, who do you turn to, who can you trust, who can you not trust, uh, you know, what would happen if you went public with it, and, and uh, you know, uh, what happens when they do go public by accident, um, 
And again, as I mentioned, some of the, the, the skeptics, the most vocal of which used to be Philip Plass. Again, Philip's no longer with us. Um, but when he couldn't figure out a particular incident, he would just call them a liar. Mm-hmm. You know, as simple as that. Well, I dare say, you know, there may be one or two uh, in there somewhere that, you know, are not the genuine article. That happens in all walks of life. Um, but, you know, in, in, in my research... I haven't come across that very often. These are genuine people with a genuine puzzle to be answered. They're not lying. They're not looking for publicity. I mean, I've had a lady just last week contact me. She only lives local to where I am. And she, her encounters started when she was four years old and lasted until she was 30 years old. She's never told anyone. Wow. I'm the first person. And all I did was listen. I haven't cast any comments. I haven't made any comparisons or made any, you know... Silly statements. I've just listened, and, and you know, and I, I find that you know very reassuring. And 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 uh, but she's never she's same age as me, uh, or thereabouts, and she's never told a soul. She's kept this to herself for all these years, and um, you know. So I, I, I try to put the abductee and the experience in, in what I think is the correct light. As I put in the in the forward, if you're looking for answers to the to the alien abduction phenomena, this is not the book to read. <laughs> You know, it, it it shows you how it happens, how it can happen, to whom it happens, and how, in my experience, some of them have dealt with it. They all deal with it different, of course. This is, is you know, is, is one way of it. It's one scenario. There's a UFO researcher in it who happens to be called Philip, and people think that's based on me. It is not. <laughs> it's based on uh, two colleagues of mine sort of amalgamated together. Um, so, you know, it, it is based on real people, these are their experiences. There is a little bit of artistic license. It had to be put in there. I, I have to be honest. It, it is a novel after all. Right. Uh, but the bulk of it is made up from my research, my, my talking to people, my traveled, I don't know how many miles, you know, doing this work, spent countless hours. And, um, you know, I just wanted to put it in, the, paint, paint the correct picture, for Alejandro, put it in the right, in the right format. And I think, you know, one of the ways of doing it, I'm not saying it's the best way or the only way, I thought was a work of fiction. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with the result. I, I think, you know, when you say no answers, that's honest, because really we don't have a whole lot of answers, which makes it kind of difficult for these people, because uh, when it comes to resolution or having some feeling of closure, there really isn't much there to do for them that way. Absolutely not. I mean, again, you know, I, I asked the small group of, of abductees what they thought was behind it, and they all differed pretty much. The young man David I mentioned, he said, "Well, it must have been the Russians, Philip." He, he didn't <laughs> really believe that, but it was his way of rationalising it. It was his way of, of putting that in a pigeonhole and putting it behind him. He felt comfortable by, you know, this was a bad thing that happened to him. You know, the bad people at the time were the Soviets. You know, there was all the threat from the Soviet bloc and we were all on standby or whatever. So, it, 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 you know, it, it, it didn't make sense to him, but it was a way of him dealing with it. Call it, call it, you know, it must have been the Russians. Didn't believe that in a, in a thousand years, but it was his way of rationalizing it. And, and you know, I spoke to abductees of, of, of said, I think it was this, and I think that. If that's what they're happy with, who am I to say different? Right. And that, you know, when I, when I entered this subject... I entered it for a very personal reason, and that was to find answers for me. You know, I, I, some people have said, was it a quest? Was it this? No, I don't think it's anything as grand as that. 
I was always the, the, the type of young man who saw a button that says don't press. I would want to press it to find out what happened. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, and the same was with the UFO phenomenon. And I always said, you know, down the years I've had many of the my questions answered, but not all of them yet. And when the day comes that I've had all the questions answered and I'm satisfied with that, if I believe that the the answer to the UFO phenomenon is X, and nobody else in the world agrees with me, well, I don't really care because I didn't really enter into it for anyone else. You know, I haven't got to that conclusion yet. I think there's still a lot of work to do, and certainly in this field as well. Uh, and the personal, as we were talking about, you know, uh, Dr. Leo Sprinkle and, uh, and others, I think there's still a lot of work to to be done, we tend to concentrate on what the people tell us about what happened, but not what happened afterwards, or about the individuals themselves, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and I think it's an area of research that could be quite fruitful. Right. Do you think there's any physical evidence that could possibly be extracted from these experiences? Well, there's certainly a physical stimulus or stimuli. There's something that sparks it off. Um, and there's many arguments and discussions as to what that may or may not be. But regarding the physicality of the subject, uh, when I spoke to John Day, John was with his wife Sue in Avery in Essex, I asked him that very same question. I said, John, you know, was this a real physical encounter? You know, and it's a statement he made that has always stuck with me, and I'm not sure I, I understand it even now. And he said, Philip, not only me as a person, but we as a species do not have the ability to describe what these experiences are. Mm. He said, but, he said, I'll give you an example. This is the best way I can describe it. If you go to a, a movie set, you can look at it, you can see it, you can touch it, you can knock on it, and it'll go, you know, knock, knock. But if you look behind it, it's all an illusion. Mm-hmm. That's how he described it. And then, some years later, uh, one of the conferences I, I hosted, uh, our keynote speaker was Whitley Strieber. And, and after his presentation, someone in the audience asked him a similar type of question. And again, it's just a phrase. He may have changed his mind since then. This is a few years ago. But it's a phrase that always stuck with me. And when it came to the, what we know about the subject, what Whitley said is we're learning to, to ask better questions. Now, I interpreted that, you know, we've asked certain questions, we're finding information, but we're still a long way to go. We're learning to ask better questions. And for me personally, I think that's still a very relevant statement today. Right. Yeah, I, I, I've i heard that too, and I, I definitely makes you think, and um, it's a good thing. I mean, uh, it means that we're learning, and there's there's still much more to learn. Absolutely. I mean, you know, in, in, if you look at any area of research outside of ufology, some of it took centuries, you know, and, and ufology to me is still only in its infancy. And uh, who knows? I and mean, again, if you're a study of the, the subject as a whole, if you look you know, where it began in 1947 with Kenneth Arnold, we'll take that as a, as a, as a point of origin, and you look at where the subject is now, it, it is very different to those early days. The, 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 you know, the subject has evolved down the decades and is continuing to evolve. So, you know, I, I'm 55 years of age now. God willing, I'll, I'll live another few decades. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see at that point in time where, you know, where, how the, the phenomenon and the way it's reported and the types of things that come our way have changed, have evolved, if you like, because it has certainly changed a lot from Kenneth Arnold's day. Mm-hmm. 
And I guess my final question will be, because uh, we're running low on time here, is uh, is the implant phenomena. I mean, how do you feel? Do you have you found implants uh, out there? Do you believe that to be a, a credible kind of physical piece to all of this? Well, again, how you know we talk about the subject being in its infancy. You know, the aspects within the subject are, are, are you know, are, are still in the womb, let alone in its infancy. Right. And that's this this area of implants. The main proponents of it have been Dr. Roger Lear and, and Daryl Sims, of course, in the United States. I have to be honest, hand on heart, it's not something we've come across uh, here in the UK to any great degree. People have made certain claims. But it's different here. You know, our medical system is different here to, to the UK. You, mm-hmm. you cannot walk in a place and pay, I don't know, $50 and have an x-ray, for example. You, <laughs> you can't do that. You know, so some of these people may be, be, be genuine, but trying to authenticate that is, is a very difficult matter. But right. again, just recently I had uh, um, a contact from a lady who said, you know, I believe my, my, uh, my friend has an implant. She lived a long way from where I do, so I put her in touch with somebody much much closer to home, uh, and, um, and 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 left them to it in that respect. Someone who can help her sort of locally. So you know, you know that that's even before its infancy. I, you know, I, I've met Doctor Talia several times, and and Daryl Sims, and they are sincere in their their work. And and again, it's when we talked about um, the subject evolving. If you go back to the to the early abduction cases, around about Betty and Barney Hill time, and, and others. You know, implants never existed. You know, there was never any mention of it or right. any any indication of it anywhere in the world. And it, it's it's a relatively new aspect to the whole subject matter. And again, it's you know, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm still in touch with with Dr. Lear and, and, and Daryl. It's something I, I, I keep an eye on. But it's not something I've come a lot come across a lot. You know, personally in my area of research. Uh, and again, it will be interesting to see how that develops. Well, we are out of time. Thank you so much for being on the show. This conversation has been um, fascinating, and it's been a great pleasure. Uh, your website is beyondroswell.com, right? That's correct. And the new book is Once Upon a Missing Time, and uh, I hope the listeners enjoy it if, if they obtain a copy. Yeah, definitely, because I think uh, it, it's... Uh, Great research that you've done. Um, it encompasses, you know, decades of work in this field. And uh, as you've shown on, on this interview, you just are a wealth of information. Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much. And you have uh, a great rest of your day. It's already evening out there. It's early morning here. It is indeed. And uh, it's been a great pleasure speaking to you. Thank you. All right. Thank you to um, Mr. Mantle for joining us today. I love talking to him. What an interesting talk and some really interesting UK cases, you know, stuff that I don't hear about much and, and probably some of you haven't either. So very much appreciated. I recommend that everybody go pick up his book, Once Upon a Missing Time, and um, actually was printed by Richard Dolan in Richard Dolan's press. We didn't even mention that before. But Thank you for joining us once again. I uh, will be back next week. No more secret missions, uh, at least as far as I know. And, of course, check out on our YouTube, uh, our 
spacing out where they talk about more news and then also um, the website where we've got the news all the time, every day, openminds.tv. Check us out on Twitter. Check us out on Facebook. And uh, also check out some of the other videos that we've been doing. We got we were talking earlier about Area 51 and, and John Greenwald. We actually interviewed him. So that's a lot of fun. And we interviewed uh, the gentleman at uh, the National Atomic Museum in Las Vegas, who has an Area 51 display there. So you'll have to check that out if you're sober in Vegas. Um, if not, just don't go there and fall all over the displays or throw up in the, the museum or anything. So stay away if you're too loaded, but maybe if you're hungover and you want something to do in the morning. But thank you for joining us. I also want to thank the people who make the music because I appreciate it so much. Our opening music made by Caleb Hanks and our closed music made by Two Earth Minutes. Those guys rock. Literally, we're going to hear them rock in a second. Otherwise, adios muchachos and we'll talk to you next week, people. 